0: Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 21st of May 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks Elisa. And on today's show, the housing spin cycle sucking Australia dry and high level pushback against the one-sided China narrative that's stoking a war. So firstly today, the housing spin cycle sucking Australia dry. Now, before we get into that topic, first an update on our ongoing Australia Post campaign, particularly the push for postal banking, we put out a media release uh, yesterday, Robbie uh, entitled the "Win-Win Post Office People's Bank" solution, and we want this will be produced as a flyer, which we want people to yep. direct into uh, both their MPs, but also really hit the local communities and local businesses hard. Take it to your local post offices because we've got to recruit people from these layers to our campaign and get a postal bank. That's the next phase.
1: Well, this is the reason we got into this whole campaign. Around the Christine Holgate issue in the first place, Lisa. Um, What the flyer does is it draws out how this really is a win-win solution. You've got, you've got. We're now aware of issues to do with Australia Post and how it functions, and the the failings and the risks associated with its future. Right, that can all be solved, especially the, the the viability, the ongoing viability of the post office, can be solved by combining postal services with financial services. So it's good for Australia Post. And it's good for Australia because you've got a phenomenon where the private banks have been allowed to, be, to, to become financial casinos. That's all they're interested in doing. And we're going to spend time talking about the casino of the, financial, of the property market. That's um, what they make all their profits. and they, they don't care about the retail service of banking anymore, mm. right? So um, people need those retail services, though. And as you know, we took a, uh, a drive through regional Western Victoria and we saw a lot of little towns that don't have banks, but they have post offices, right? And the, the post office, if the Australia Post can become a bank mm. or, or the basis of a postal bank, that, those people can be guaranteed financial services for all time.
0: Yeah, we'll put up a picture of uh, Mortlake here in Western Victoria Uh, where the ANZ Bank just closed in March. And so now none of the Big Four or Bendigo have either a bank Mm. branch or an ATM. And for the ANZ customers, because ANZ never signed up to bank at post, they have to travel 40 kilometres or so to the nearest town to get any um, banking service.
1: But everyone else can bank in the town at the post office.
0: Yeah, that's right. And then another case uh, where a supporter sent in this graphic from the local CBA window in Monbulk, where they're shutting the local branch and now people have to travel over 10 kilometres to Emerald or go down to Belgrave.
1: Now, just to be clear, um, thanks to the deal that Christine Holgate did when she was the CEO of Australia Post in 2018 with the private banks to get them to pay, people can now bank with their existing bank through the post office, and that's great. However, that deal has to be renewed, right? And the banks will renew it Only if it suits them. The fact ANZ didn't want to do the deal in the first place shows you there's plenty of people in the banks who think, why would we bother doing this, right? Christine Holgate's not there anymore. The banks appear to have taken advantage of that. They've jacked up the fees on those bank and post transactions to $4.50, which is ridiculous, right? It's just Mm. gouging the customer again. Um, So that's what they've been allowed to do. If Australia Post were its own bank, that would guarantee the revenue that licensed post offices need to stay open. That would guarantee services... To the public of all for all time, and the post office, the post office and the public will not be at the mercy of the private banks, mm. right? That's why the 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 uh, the the, uh, the postal bank, the postal people's bank, post office people's bank is such a great solution. Now, I just want to also say, um, Elisa, I wasn't on the show last week, which which was the first show after it was announced by Christine Holgate that she'd moved on. She decided to accept a job at Toll Global Express as the new CEO there. Now, a lot of people have been disappointed by that, right? And we were a bit disappointed as well because it was a big campaign to get her reinstated. Um, however, Christine Holgate ultimately had to make the right decision for her, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a very understandable decision. It's not just that she went through a lot um, of psychological pressure in this whole escapade, right? This whole fiasco it was very hard on her. But it's very hard on her support network, of family, etc., as well, right? Um, and as she told the committee, you know, this this, this took her to some dark places psychologically. Um, Christine was fully prepared to come back to Australia Post, though, because out of more more out of loyalty to the licensed post offices than to her own ambitions. When the government allowed Australia Post to announce a new CEO the day before. The inquiry started. That's when the writing was really on the wall, right? Because that made it so much more difficult to get her reinstated. So even though the next day her testimony at the first Australia post hearing was brilliant, and it transformed the discussion about this Australia-wide, right? And that allowed her to clear her name to, to satisfactorily enough for her, right? Um, so that was effective. But then the, the, in the days after, the government just doubled down and lied and lied and lied again, right? So we could have, we could have, we were always prepared to fight this to the to the to the bitter end. Um, uh, but th- there's only a certain amount that that someone like in Christine Holgate's position can take. And I can tell you, there's a lot of personal aspects of this that you know um, uh, uh, you know sort of prompted her to make the decision. So that's understandable. But I want to say this just in, in in summary, it was never really about Christine Holgate anyway. It's about Australia Post, right? She was just happened to be the best CEO. So this is why I see it. She already saved Australia Post. She saved Australia Post when she became the CEO in 2017 and did the banking deal, did all those other things. It's because she was so successful that she made enemies in the government whose, whose agenda was we're going to downsize and privatise this thing and get rid of it, right? She got in their way. So, But but her by her management, she saved Australia Post. We now all know that. It's up to us, the Australian people. Now we know about this issue through her, now we know about Australia Post through what she went through, that's how most of us are, have become aware of this, it's up to us to stay behind this issue and stay behind the licensed post offices and make sure we now save Australia Post. Mm. That's the issue.
0: Yeah, now I think we'll take our break now and we'll come back and talk about the housing bubble. Mm. Welcome back to the Citizen's Report. We're now going to go into the housing spin cycle that's sucking Australia dry. Um, So the housing bubble is taking off yet again in a major expansion. Um, We'll put up this graph from the RBA, which shows um, not only Australia, but various other places around the world, from Canada to Sweden and the United Kingdom, experiencing the same kind of expansion.
1: Just on that, that although Australia looks like it's at the lowest point there, that's just growth. Mm. We started actually from the highest right our our property prices are much higher than that indicates that's the growth that's been going on
0: and the ABS figures which were put up here show in the year to March an increase in mortgage lending of uh, more than 55% and these two subsequent graphs from the ABS show increasing uh, new loan commitments in total housing values is the first one and then in the next one is the new loan commitments to first home buyers in terms of the number going out. Now the budget that's just been passed, the federal budget, will increase the amount of voluntary super contributions that can be put towards home purchases. Uh, It will extend the home loan deposit scheme where you only have to put 5% up for a deposit, single parent home buyer schemes where they only have to put 2% up, increase spending on the home builder scheme for certain purchases and renovations and so forth and an increase in the super contributions that pensioners can put towards um, without having to affect their income when they sell the family home so they can put more into their super without it cutting back the pension. Um, so these are all ways that the budget is encouraging an extra inflow of money to prop up the housing bubble. Well, what
1: the, more than prop up, expand, push expand, it up. Expand,
0: that's right. Make it skyrocket. Um, and and the whole, the question about super, you know, being able to go into the bubble is part of a broader discussion about, you know, there's a certain push to allow people to use holus bolus their superannuation to buy into housing.
1: This, only, is, this is, let me just say, Lisa, this is the only trick that our federal government's got when it comes to the economy. This is their economic recovery policy, make housing more expensive. How does that make sense? Well, it's called the wealth effect. If, you're, if you own the home and it's going up, you'll be prepared to go into more debt to buy other stuff. Mm-hmm. That, that was the story of the first two decades of the 20th century, 21st century, and they want to re- replicate that. Meanwhile, what does it leave you? Just mm. lots and lots of debt.
0: Yeah, so, but increasing super going into the housing bubble is interesting. I'll put up a graphic here because apart from super itself going into housing and boosting that bubble, 20% of our super goes into the US stock market because it's exempt from tax issues restricting other offshore investments. Um, So you've got this money being funnelled into the US bubble which fuels growing US speculation. Uh, And then in turn of course the US provides about a third of Australian banks offshore funding and 63.4% of our loans coming out of Australian banks, go into mortgages. And, in fact, the US Studies Centre says it is not a stretch to say Australians' mortgages are brought to them by US capital markets. We've had since the big QE expansion, and particularly the repo market funding injections, US hedge funds directing a lot of those repo funds into investment in Australian government securities. We've got a large direct investment into shares coming from US um, investment, nearly 50% of the foreign investment is from the US that comes here into our share market, into the housing market and other investments which has increased has increased 25% in the last five years. So this money coming in is fueling our housing bubble, pumping that up and the cycle continues over and over. Now the other thing that the budget just did is it opened the door to more US financial operators coming into Australia and set up more permanently. Uh, there's, we'll put up the article, Australia Rolls Out Red Carpet to Wall Street, where they're bringing in exemptions for foreign firms in comparable jurisdictions, so not China, not other countries, to set up here. And Vanguard and BlackRock, which are these um, major firms that dominate the global market using their you know, computer-based algorithms to track various indexes.
1: BlackRock is so big as a fund manager now, it dictates to companies all around the world.
0: They already own 10% of the Australian Stock Exchange, so they're rolling out the red carpet even further. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia says um, it's not our job to rein in house prices. Guy Bell, the Deputy um, Reserve Bank Governor, said that on the 6th May in a speech um, Governor Lowe has said that previously, APRA will, um, buyers has said that it's not our job to solve house prices, but what was put to them recently um, by a number of Senators in uh, Senate Economics Legislation Committee meetings on the 24th of March raised a bigger issue for them and I want to play the clip we've showed before on the show from Senator Jared Rennick putting this question to uh, DeBell from the RBA.
1: I mean, I'd argue, and this isn't your responsibility, by the way, but if we can find $200 billion to underwrite banks or back them up, uh, we need to find a similar amount of money to build some infrastructure and get the real economy moving as well.
0: And then he was followed up by Green Senator Nick McKim, who said, Monetary policy has assisted the speculative section of the economy, that is in part house prices, more than it has assisted the productive side of the economy. Is there anything that the RBA can do other than rely on the financial system to make the decisions about where to transmit the money? In the post-war era, he said for instance, central banks were much more prescriptive about where any newly created money was directed. They used credit guidance to steer central bank money to productive purposes. Is there any impediment to the RBA doing that? And DeBell answered, I'm not sure. McKim said, have a bit of a think about that and come back on notice. Well, this 6 uh, May speech online uh, forum that DeBell just addressed, he said this, and he was talking about bond purchases, the quantitative easing the RBA is doing. He said, the RBA does not and will not directly finance governments. While the bond purchases are lowering the cost of finance for governments, as is the case for all borrowers, the bank is not providing direct finance. There remains a strong separation between monetary and fiscal policy.
1: So Lisa, all the, 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 these central, the RBA is saying like all other central banks, they want to do this QE to infinity garbage, right? Just print money for the sake of propping up the, the speculative bubble, right? Including including the, the the government debt stuff, but they do not want to ever go back to a proper national banking model, right? Where the like Alexander Hamilton set up in Australia had with the Commonwealth Bank. Where that power that the the, the central bank has, the national bank, can be used to invest in the economy. If you're going to put money out, make sure it's productive. They don't want to do that. No, they're just there at the beck and call of the private financial system to keep pumping out QE to prop it up.
0: Yeah, creating this bubble that's going to blow and bring us all, you know, to grief. Now, there's more info in the latest Australian Alert Service on this housing bubble because we had to skim over a lot of the details, but it's all there, so contact us for a copy if you haven't already. And we'll be right back after this break to discuss the pushback against against a confrontation with China. Welcome back to The Citizen's Report. We're now discussing high-level pushback against the one-sided China narrative that's stoking a war. And as that headline suggests, uh, there are people that are beginning to realise we could be on the lines of war if we don't dial back the kind of rhetoric that's coming out of this country at the moment. Um, So the one-sided reporting on the China business is beginning to be challenged more and more. And one such example is from veteran journalist, uh, former Japan correspondent and former AFR Deputy Editor Max Such, who's written four articles as a series, including one headlined, China Confrontation, What Were We Thinking? And he does a number of things in those articles which are well worth reading, including confirming from inside sources that this shift vis-a-vis China has been driven from the intelligence uh, agencies, as former Prime Minister Paul Keating has previously said, and he in fact pinpoints an important meeting in 2017 that um, hallmarked that shift at the Lowy Institute where DFAT, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, briefed officials and diplomats on the consequences of picking this fight with China which they knew would be severe uh, and this is how he characterised it. We were in a battle of ideas and we had to make clear we would not trade our better life and democratic liberties for the Chinese trade bonanza and obedience to the desires of authoritarian Chinese Communist Party rule. That approach was likely to provoke trade penalties such as China had levied on South Korea around this time. Our new relationship would have to be defined by push and shove, but Australian business did not receive such a timely warning.
1: Well, that's quite a revelation because, for the last 12 months or, or more, When China started sanctioning our trade, our exporters to who have enjoyed a good a good market there, the attitude's been like, oh, why is China? This is coercive. This is vindictive. Why is you know why is China punishing us just for standing up for our values? What this what Max Such reveals with this meeting, there was a meeting in 2017 in Sydney that planned this. They said we're going to become more belligerent against China, and we know it's going to um, take a toll. It's the framing of the, of the reason why, the justification, though, which we're taking exception to, because it's always completely one-sided.
0: And an example of that is an editorial that just came out subsequently in the, in, in the AFR headlined, Australia, China ties undone by changes under Xi Jinping, which basically says, look, China changed and we had no choice but to push back, call out and get out in front of the situation.
1: Yeah, but it's not our fault, it's China's fault fundamentally, except... None of that is true. Now, I'm going to play a series of videos, Elisa. Um, the first one, I want people to watch this. This is Julia Gillard and Barack Obama in 2011, when Julia Gillard announces the, de, the Asia pivot deployment of, Australian, of US Marines to Darwin and other aspects of Australia becoming more tied in with the US government's military operations in the Pacific.
2: Good evening, one and all. Uh, I take this opportunity to very warmly welcome President Obama to Australia for his first visit as President. President Obama is no stranger to our shores, having visited Australia before, but it is a special delight to have him here for his first visit as President. And it comes at an important time in our nation's history and in the history of our region. We will be looking back during this visit. We'll be looking back at 60 years of the ANZUS Alliance. We'll be looking back 10 years to the dreadful day of 9-11, a day we all remember with great sorrow. And we will be reflecting on those events. But we will be looking forward. We live in the growing region of the world, whose global uh, contribution to global growth is a profound one. We live in a region which is changing, changing in important ways. And as a result of those changes, President Obama and I have been discussing the best way of our militaries cooperating for the future. So I'm very pleased to be able to announce with President Obama that we've agreed joint initiatives to enhance our alliance, 60 years old and being kept robust for tomorrow. It is a new agreement to expand the existing collaboration between the Australian Defence Force and the US Marine Corps and the US Air Force. What this means in very practical detail is from mid-2012, Australia will welcome deployments of a company-sized rotation of 200 to 250 Marines in the Northern Territory for around six months at a time. Over a number of years, we intend to build on this relationship in a staged way to a full force of around 2,500 personnel. That is a full marine air ground task force. A second component of these initiatives, which we have agreed, is greater access by US military aircraft to the Royal Australian Air Force facilities in our country's north. This will involve more frequent movements of U.S. military aircraft into and out of northern Australia.
1: Now, Lisa, what was extraordinary about that clip? I, remember, I was listening to it live at the time. Julia Gillow was a very self-assured person. She had she, she, she had such a strong voice; it was like a drone. Look, listen to how quavery her voice was. There, it's like she'd just been beaten up in the back room to accept this thing that no government, until her had ever considered accepting because it was way too provocative in Asia to become such a base for American military, right? And this was 2011. Xi Jinping didn't become president until 2013. This was pre-Xi. We upset the balance of power in this region. We, the, we let the Americans put 60% of their firepower in China's face, and we're saying, what, we don't think China sh- China shouldn't have reacted? Mm. Of course China was going to react. And the yeah. proof of that is, watch what Malcolm Fraser said. Two years later, in an interview with the ABC specifically on this subject, this is the former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser.
3: Being independent, people do not realise the extent to which we have been entwined in the United States policy in the last 15 or 20 years. At a time when the Cold War is over, the United States is now in the process of establishing a new Cold War in the Pacific. Her military policies failed in Vietnam, failed in Iraq, failing in Afghanistan. The Middle East is a mess and leaving all that behind, they say they're going to shift their forces to the Western Pacific. We are part of this part of the world and we don't want to be part of America's future mistakes in this region. But has the government been frank with Australians, saying where it might lead? saying that we're going to be asked to pay for a lot of it. It's America trying to tie us into their policy of containment, which is about the most dangerous position Australia could possibly be in.
1: So the reason we call this reporting one-sided is because what we've just shown you is never talked about. It's never acknowledged. It's all about, oh, China's aggression in Taiwan, China's aggression in the South China Sea. No, our side started this, right? And I'll give you another example now. This is a Sky News clip from just the other day, Sky News UK, talking about Taiwan. And listen to their words about how they describe China's aggression to Taiwan. But then look at the map with your own eyes and look where China's doing this. This is Taiwan's declared air defence identification zone. And this is where Chinese jets have been flying just in the month of April. Twice in the same month, China has also sent an aircraft carrier to the other side of Taiwan, surrounding the island, according to mainland state media. In response, the US Navy has been carrying out freedom of navigation exercises through the Taiwan Strait, water that the UK's own aircraft carrier will avoid on its maiden voyage this summer. So even the examples of China's aggression to Taiwan Look at it with your own eyes. Look, first of all, look at that air um, defence identification zone that Taiwan claims. Half of it's over mainland China for crying out loud. It's a ridiculous concept. If the Chinese fly their planes over their own country, and it goes through that zone, right? <gasps> oh, that's some kind of threat to Taiwan. Garbage. That's a relic from the Cold War, by the way. We're gonna t- we're gonna have to take a break from the Channel 31 viewers. Say goodbye to them, but we're going to continue with uh, YouTube Thanks viewers, for in. See you next week. All right. So second one, look at the look at where the Chinese fighters. They identify the Chinese fighters were flying, right? Yes, they covered the the zone over the ocean, but they're closer to mainland China than they are to Taiwan, right? And that's what this is what we've been told lately. You hear, oh, China's aggression to Taiwan. That's what it is. It's not even close to Taiwan. Look at the aircraft carrier's position. They claim, oh, well, the aircraft carrier encircling Taiwan. It's closer to Bloom and Okinawa than to Taiwan, right? But then look at where the Americans fly, sail their destroyer. By sailing through the Taiwan Strait, which even the British pompous colonials who are sending their rubber duckies aircraft carrier over here so they can recapture the glory of the empire in the opium wars to be part of this provocation against China. Even they're not prepared to sail through the Taiwan Strait because it is provocative, because look how close it actually is to China. Yeah. If the Chinese sailed their ships that close to the American shore over the other side of the Pacific, imagine the hullabaloo, right? This is... So in your, with your own eyes, you can see that how one-sided the reporting is of this supposed threat that's got Mike Pazullo. And Peter Dutton talking about the drums of war. It is such a huge beat up. But this one-sided reporting mm. is what's brought us to this position. And thank God people, more senior statesmen, at least in Australia, like this guy Max Such, etc., are starting to call it out as we've been doing all along.
0: Mm. Yeah, because listen to the provocative language from that AFR Uh, editorial I cited before where they were talking about how the Australian government was forced to work with partners to quote-unquote collectively manage China including the partnership known as the quadrilateral uh, defence dialogue Uh, They say, they put it this way, the Quad also advances Australia's goal of engaging the US in the region and maintaining the post-war Pax Americana that has delivered security and prosperity in the Asia-Pacific region and allowed China to peacefully rise. I
1: I nearly (laughs) fell off my chair when I read that because we, we highlighted four or five years ago in our New Citizen newspaper how this idea of Pax Americana which means American Empire, or the Ameri- It's like it's based on the Roman Pax Romana, Roman Peace, which was the Roman Empire. American Empire. In 1992, when Dick Cheney was the Secretary of Defense of the United States, his Undersecretary was Paul Wolfowitz, and these guys were the hardcore neocons in the George H.W. Bush administration. And of course, they're the ones that had you know helped stage the first Gulf War and all that. But Dick, Paul Wolfowitz. Um, enunciated this doctrine, which became known as the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was that from now on, America would not tolerate the rise of a rival military or economic power, mm. right? Like that was the
0: Soviet their, Union had
1: been. Like the Soviet Union, or as they were thinking of China at the time yeah. as well, right? They were not going to tolerate, we, we will be the sole superpower for all time. And, and an American senator, a Democratic senator, was so shocked by that. He attacked it as, he said, that is Pax Americana. That is an American empire. It was an attack the senator made on it. That senator's name was Joe Biden. Oh. He's now the president of the United States. But since 1992 and now, everyone has adopted this as policy. Oh. Joe Biden's given into it. Everyone, this is now the policy, right? And not only have the Americans adopted it as their policy and are no longer ashamed of thinking that way, Australia, through this editorial, this, the guy who wrote this editorial is Michael Stuchfrey, the uh, the editor of the Financial Review, he was one of these Murdoch editors of The Australian back in the time of the Gulf War, campaigning for that war, right? So he's he's just a neocon himself. But they're demanding this as policy. We should keep this policy of Pax Americana alive. Like, Pax Americana, he's basically saying, is Australia's policy. Yeah. Well, that's the sort of thinking that's so at odds with what I played you with uh, uh, Malcolm Fraser and even uh, and, and Max Such and even a lot, a lot of older statesmen who are much more independently minded in their day, mm-hmm. Elisa... And, you know, on the back page of the alert service this week, we have this great little article there about how at the height of the Cold War, at the height of the worst period in China, that's the Cultural Revolution, um, Black Jack McEwen, the head of the country party, did a, did a, uh, would not go along with American trade sanctions against China, even though we were allies of America and he was as anti-communist as anybody, we were, he was more independently, thinking, uh, an independent thinker, and. Um, he did a trade deal with China with wheat that established our trade relationship. We we established a trade relationship with China at a time when China was a much, 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 much worse country than it is today, right? When there were real human rights abuses and all that kind of stuff. The only difference is China, um, which has improved out of sight in a million ways, in those days was no threat to the United States hegemony, yeah. or Anglo-American hegemony, and today he's, they're leaving them behind, and that's why this has all got to be beaten up.
0: Yeah, and it is good to see that you have various thinkers and commentators that are beginning to see through this effort to split and divide countries such as Australia from working with China um, in order to protect that American hegemony. So that's a first step, and um, we need to put the alternatives forward. Uh, because we do not want to end up in war, that's for sure. So, um, that's for sure. We'll stop there. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Alisa. Thanks for tuning in. Call in for an alert service and join us again next week.